Uh, last Sunday, this envelope was left in church. Now, I know you can't see it, but Ryan's helping me. This is, this is, it's addressed to Jesus. And, and it, was, it was left here in church. And, and on the back, on the back it says, Pastor Dennis, can you give this to Jesus? So the next time I talked to Jesus, I read it to him. I, I, opened, I opened the envelope, and uh, on the inside was an index card that said, God loves you. So I reminded Jesus that God loves him. Everybody needs to be reminded from time to time that God loves you. And even Jesus took time out to go talk with his heavenly father. And I am sure that whenever the father and the son spoke, the father always was sure to tell the son, I love you. Right? Now, um, in recent years, I've, I've, tried, I've tried to build this habit into my conversations with my wife and with my children every time I talk to them. Whenever I talk, whenever I leave the house, I give Kelly a kiss goodbye and I tell her I'll see you later. Whenever I've talked with one of my kids or with one of their spouses or with one of my grandkids, I try to tell them every time I see them, I love you. I don't know if that might be the last thing they hear me say. I don't know. And so I want to be sure that the last thing people who love me hear me say to them is, I love you. All right, I'm ready to start my sermon. Happy Mother's Day. You thought I wasn't going to say Happy Mother's Day today because I said this last week. I said I'm not doing Mother's Day. And I, I didn't say it well. And some of you told me, hey, who do you think you are canceling Mother's Day? I don't have that authority. I don't have that authority. I'm not canceling Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. If, if you are a mother, happy Mother's Day. If you have a mother, of course on this day we celebrate those women who carried us for three quarters of a year inside their bodies. And then they endure the anguish and the suffering of labor and childbirth and the recovery thereafter. And um, uh, if you're a husband and a, and a dad, you have endured the story <laughs> thereafter. All the while, mom was feeding us, clothing us, nourishing and nurturing us and sacrificing, sacrificing for us to bring us to maturity. No matter who you are today, you are here, or, or you are anywhere, for that matter, because you had a mother who gave you life. Right? That's a biological fact. However, it seems that we mostly don't talk about women much at all in church, except on this one Sunday each year, the second Sunday in May, which is designated as Mother's Day. Do you know when... The second Sunday in May was designated as Mother's Day. I did, a little, I did a little reading. This holiday was introduced in America by a woman named Anna Jarvis. How many of you know about Anna Jarvis? I didn't either. She introduced this in 1908. She began a campaign for a day to celebrate mothers. And it became an official United States holiday in 1914. So for as long as any of us have been alive in America, the second Sunday in May has been designated as Mother's Day. But before 1914, it wasn't. Miss Jarvis never married, and she never had a child. And later, after she successfully campaigned to have a day to recognize mothers, she became disgusted with the commercial, commercialization of it. 
And she spent the rest of the years of her life trying to remove Mother's Day from the calendar. Imagine that. She won. And then she said, that was a mistake. I learned yesterday from uh, a friend who happens to cut my hair. I was in her chair on Wednesday getting my hair cut, and I was talking with her about our plans for this coming Mother's Day. And uh, um, she sent me a message yesterday, and she told me about National Birth Mother's Day. Did you know there was such a thing as Birth Mother's Day? I didn't until yesterday. Listen to this. There is no Mother's Day without Birth Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a celebration of the sacrifices that mothers make for their families every day. However, for some families, they would not be able to celebrate Mother's Day without the biggest sacrifice of all, the one that a birth mother made for their family. The Saturday before Mother's Day, that was yesterday, the Saturday before Mother's Day is celebrated as Birth Mother's Day. I've never heard of it before yesterday. While it is not as largely publicized or well-known, it is a very important day for those who are positively affected by adoption. Most birth mothers are unaware that there is a day set aside especially to recognize and to honor them. Many are appreciative, but some would rather not be recognized as this day can evoke a wide range of emotions. So today, in the context of honoring those women among us who God has chosen to be mothers, we also recognize those who have given birth to children and then turned them over to others to nurture and to raise. Now, I did say this last week that I was not going to just celebrate Mother's Day today, but that I want to designate today as, at Harmony Baptist Church, Women's Day. Over the years that I've been preaching on Mother's Day, including the last two years, Pastor John gave this Sunday to me. Now, you're the pastor of marriage and family. You do Mother's Day. And I have said nice things about mothers, I think. I went back and I looked through all of, the, all of my records about all of the Mother's Day sermons that I have preached, and I've done some nice acrostics, L-O-V-E and M-O-T-H-E-R, and, and uh, talked about the hand that rocks the cradle, and, and the nice things that people like me say to people like you on a day like today. But as I've been talking to people over these years, and particularly as I've been visiting in households of our of our church family over the last months, uh, I've heard more than once. I don't come to church on Mother's Day. It's too hard. I couldn't be a mother. Or I'm a mother who lost a child. Or children. Someone uh, this morning prayed in our pre-worship huddle in the other room uh, for mothers who carried children but never held them as living children. And and uh, for several other reasons too, I thought it's high time that we found something to talk about about women in church besides the fact that some many. Maybe most of the women in church are mothers. But is that all there is to being a woman? Just the ability to give birth? Is that the only thing that we want to celebrate about women? I hope not. You are more than that. And I don't mean to devalue that. Please, mothers, please don't feel like I'm taking away your recognition. I don't intend to do that at all. And if I've given that impression, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That was not the impression that I meant to give. 
But we talk with such flowery language about how great it is to have a wonderful mother and how much we celebrate those among us who are mothers. And in doing so, we fail to communicate that women have made or can make any significant contribution into the life and the work of the church other than being a good mother. And that is not good enough for us. And so I offer a sincere apology, especially my sincere apology to all of you women who are listening in the room and online for not saying enough about who you are and what you are in the context of the life of the church. You are more than just one thing. Today I want to offer two case studies of important women in the Bible, women who were chosen and gifted by God, empowered and recognized and celebrated by their community for their significance to that community without any reference at all to whether or not they were mothers. The Bible doesn't tell us if either of these women had children or didn't have children. And I'm not going to make any assumption. But their stories are instructive to us And there is something for us to see and something for us to learn about these women as representative of many, many, many women who are in our communities who have made and are making and will make important and significant contributions to our life together. I'm drawing one of these case studies from the Old Testament, the period of the law, and the other from the New Testament, the age of grace, the church age. And I'd like to start with the witness of Deborah. You probably heard of Deborah. Uh, her story is found in the book of Judges. You know the book of Judges. There's some interesting stories in the book of Judges. It fills the gap between the period of Israel's history uh, where God appointed Moses to lead the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land And along the way, he gave his people the law, the requirements by which they would come to understand who God is and what what God likes, what what God is like and what he requires. And uh, and then uh, Moses' successor, Joshua, and Joshua led the the people of Israel into the promised land and uh, mostly won victories and subdued the land and drove... Uh, the enemies out and then portioned the land among the 12 tribes. And then after Joshua died, there, there ceased to be a single unifying leadership presence among the people of Israel. And uh, they began to look to their, to their tribes, their, their tribal leaders, their village leaders, their clan leaders, and uh, they were decentralized people. And decentralization made them vulnerable to the enemies who still inhabited that part of the land or wanted to get the land back that they had been driven from. And so there was a a series, a succession of of cycles that we can point to in in the time of the judges where for a period of time, uh, the people of God began to turn away from God. They stopped following uh, the, the... the statutes of God, they stopped following the law, they stopped practicing their uh, religious observance of God and his ways, and they began to do their own thing. There's a recurring idea in the book of Judges. Now in those, in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you remember that idea from the book of Judges? And as people turned away from God, God introduced adversity in their lives. And when adversity comes, like still happens, still is true for us today, when we find ourselves facing adversity, we suddenly remember that we have a God that we can call out to for help. If we had remembered that sooner, we might not have had the adversity. But if we won't do what God wants us to do willingly, he will nudge us, right? 
How many of you have felt that nudge? How many of you have missed it when it was gentle? And you, you forced God to become more insistent? Like we do with our parents, right? Why won't you take out the garbage? I've been telling you for the last 90 minutes to take out the garbage. Now I'm pulling the plug on your video game. I'm taking the controller away until the garbage gets taken out. I didn't have video games as a kid, but I did have to take out the garbage. As the people of Israel cried out to God for relief from the adversity of the oppression of their neighbors, God would raise up a champion, a hero, a judge. And then God would use that person uh, to rally the people of Israel together. And then God would help the hero and the people that came to support him And they would drive out. They would have victory over their enemies. And then they would enjoy a time of peace and prosperity for a time. Until they forgot. And you see that again and again and again in the book of Judges. The best known of these judges. If if you were to be taking a quiz today. And I was to say to you. Name two judges from the book of Judges. Probably you would come up with Gideon and Samson. Gideon and Samson. Those are the two most well-known. There's, there's more written in judges about Gideon and Samson than any of the other judges. But before there was Gideon, there was Deborah. Judges chapter 4, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Uh, it's interesting, before I move on from here, I highlighted some of these words in that lemon yellow color to make them stand out. Uh, a prophetess, a prophet is a person who hears from God and declares the message of God to the people, and the people recognize that this person is prophetic. And this woman, Deborah, was known among her people as a person through whom God was speaking to them. We aren't told any of Deborah's backstory. How did it first come to be that the word of the Lord came to Deborah? How did she first recognize that God was speaking to her? And how did the people who heard her repeat God's word recognize that She really was hearing from God. Well, the the test of a prophet in the Old Testament is if what the prophet says comes true, they're a true prophet. And if it doesn't come true, they're a false prophet. Take them out and stone them in the Old Testament sense, not in the 1970s sense. Take them out and stone them, put them to death, execute them. So there's there's a lot at stake to become a prophet. But Deborah was a prophetess, and people recognized that. And she was judging Israel at that time. The next verse says, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah. Uh, She was so well known that the tree she sat under was named after her. That's Deborah's tree. Cool. This custom began in the time of Moses. The people of Israel came up to her for judgment. If they had a problem, if they had a question, if they had a dispute, they would come to Deborah. And they would make their case and Deborah would rule, kind of like Judge Judy. (laughs) Or, Or Judge Wapner, or whichever judge show you watch. People came to Deborah because she had godly wisdom. She had had God in her ear and she would say, this is what needs to happen. And people listened. People did what she said. Because they had confidence that what she was saying was coming not from her own thoughts, but from God. In other words, Deborah in her time was fulfilling the same role that Moses fulfilled during his time leading the people 
uh, out of Egypt and, and up to the edge of the promised land. Now, not in every sense, not in every way. She was not the lawgiver. She was not other things that we recognize Moses for. But she was judging among the disputes of the people the way Moses did. Now we find uh, verse, is that verse 6? She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? So she sent for Barak, acting in her role as prophetess, speaking to God, speaking for God to the people. She had a message to deliver to Barak. But notice, she says to Barak, Isn't this what God said to you? And that implies that Barak had already heard this from God. And Deborah is confirming it. Barak, God has told me that he said this to you. Now, this reminds me of a story from my father's uh, time. He, we had this set of wheels. We had this uh, metal frame and set of wheels that our house was delivered to our, to our property on. It was a mobile home. It came... It came to our house on, on wheeled trailers. You all, you all have the idea? So um, the crew that assembled the house took it off of this trailer and mounted it on the foundation. And they, they took this trailer and they hauled it off to the edge of the property where it sat gathering rust. And there was a missionary uh, who was in our church who had a chapel on wheels and um, he came to my father one day and said, Bob, that my father's name was Bob. Bob, God told me uh, to tell you to give me your trailer so I can take the wheels off of your trailer and put them on mine. And, and my father didn't like the way he was being approached. So he said, well, his, the missionary's name also happened to be Bob. He said, well, Bob, when God tells me that, <laughs> we'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah, anyway, I remember that story. I thought you would enjoy it. God said to Barak, go do this. And Barak maybe wasn't immediately jumping up to do it. And so Deborah called Barak and said, hey, Barak, did not God tell you to do this? Do. This is what Deborah said, God said to Barak, go gather your men at Mount Tabor taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with Kishon. Did you know you had a river? You did. With his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his general Sisera, the commander of his army, these were the oppressors du jour, the the oppressor of the day, the current hostile neighbor that was troubling Israel. And uh, God had said to Barak, go fight him. And he said to Deborah, tell Barak, I told him, go fight. This is what Barak said to Deborah. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. It kind of it, it, it raises some ideas, some questions, some wondering about this guy Barak. Was he a coward? No. But he recognized that the hand of God was with Deborah more than he felt that it was with him. And so if Deborah would come out with him, not to fight, but if Deborah would come out with him representing Representing God. Maybe she was the first military chaplain. Interesting. Barak was confident that if Deborah was with him, then God was with him. This is the kind of influence that this person had. Remember the story in Exodus when, uh, when the Amalekites attacked Israel and, and uh, Moses said to Joshua, Go lead, the, go lead the, the militia. They didn't have an army. Go lead the militia and fight the Amalekites. I'll sit up here on the hilltop and I'll hold my hands up 
and um, I'll watch, and as long as I'm watching, God will bless you and give you victory. And that's what happened. And the battle went on, and, and the Israelites under Joshua's leadership were winning. But, but what happened? Moses' arms got tired. They got heavy. And when his arms came down, the tide of the battle changed. You remember the story? And so uh, Moses' brother Aaron and this guy Hur, uh, ancestor of Ben-Hur probably, uh, got a rock and they sat Moses down on this rock and, and one stood on his left and one stood on his right and held his arms up until the battle was over. And Barak was probably remembering that story and he was thinking probably that if Deborah is watching over, then God is watching over and God will keep his promise. Now, probably, probably God did, did not need Deborah to keep his promise. Probably. But Barak needed Deborah. Right? Barak needed to know that the prophetess, the woman upon whom God's spirit rested, was on his side. And because of that, so uh, Deborah said to Barak, this is her response, Okay, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So Deborah's response to Barak, okay, you're giving up your opportunity to be the hero here, but that was fine with Barak. He was the first to say, hero, shmiro. <laughs> I made that up. I admit it, I made that up. That's not in the text. So I encourage you to read the rest of Judges chapter 4 and see how Deborah's prophecy was fulfilled. And learn the origin of the expression, nailed it. I'm not going to, you're going to have to read it. Some of you already have, that's why you're laughing. Uh, here's another saying that comes from this story, I'm certain of it. Um, he was served a spiked drink. But you're going to have to read the rest of Judges 4 to get, to get the, the pun there. Now, that's, that's the end of the case study on Deborah. I wanted, I wanted you to see. Uh, Deborah was far ahead of centuries, millennia ahead of her time. She was a leader, a head of state. Something that is still a new idea to many. Something that still has not happened in our own country. But Deborah is a precedent setter. God chose her. He could have chosen anyone. You, you know this, right? God could choose anyone. And does. But for this period in the history of Israel... In the context of warring tribes and clans and decentralization of government and everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, God raised up a woman to lead the people of God to victory. And don't discount that. We have discounted that for far too long. I want to share with you this First, from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, this commentary Paul offers to us in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12, before I go on to the next case study. Uh, in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, there's some interesting stuff around this, but this jumps out to me in, in, uh, in this particular message that I'm trying to deliver today. Nevertheless, Paul says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. None of us can say, we don't need you. We don't need you. A couple of weeks ago, my oldest son, Darren, who works in uh, Washington, D.C., he installs escalators in the metro stations in Washington, D.C. And there are, there are crazy people coming and going all the time. I won't even tell you uh, the worst stuff that happens to him and his crew. But two weeks ago, he sent us this message. Uh, he was working, and uh, a woman came by, and she's screaming at them, All men must die. I responded to him. He's, she's not wrong, but she's just too limited. It's appointed unto men and women once to die, and after this, the judgment. But that's, that started a little dialogue back and forth between different members of the family. Um, how long after all the men die, do all the women then die? And... and um, one person said, well, we have, enough, we have enough sperm in the sperm banks that we can go on. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then somebody else said, so we, do we follow the doctrine of Pharaoh and we drown all the boys that are born so that we make sure that all the men... And so how, how many generations does it take for everybody to be gone? The idea is none of us can foolishly say about anybody else, I don't need you. We need one another. Men, we need the women. And not just to give birth, right? Women, you need us men, as, idiot, as idiotic as we can often be. You still need us. Not sure why, but it's out there somewhere. <laughs> we are dependent on the opposite sex, the opposite gender. We are not independent. We cannot function healthily without both men and women working together. We cannot thrive, we cannot flourish as a people, as a church community. We cannot thrive, we cannot flourish, we cannot realize all that God wants us to be unless we work together. Amen. Now let's turn our attention to the New Testament, the age of grace, the church age, and the witness of Priscilla. Most of what modern churches believe and practice is drawn from the letters of the Apostle Paul. Not exclusively, but predominantly. We organize ourselves and we function following the Scripture, Holy Spirit-inspired um, Paul to write. And uh, he uh, introduces us in Acts chapter 18 to a Jewish man... And, and his wife. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius, the emperor, issued a proclamation if you're Jewish, you got to get out. Go somewhere else, don't stay here. Uh, and it continues, he, went, he, Paul, went to see them, Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. This couple, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, had, been, had been sent out from Rome, but they found, they found a new place to live and they set up a home and they set up a shop and they were working with canvas or whatever materials they were using at that time for, for tents, for tabernacles, for temporary shelters. Uh, they shared a cultural heritage. They were Jewish, so they had that to talk about. They shared a profession, a trade, so they had that skill to talk about. And while they were living and working together, no doubt Paul was talking to this couple about God and his own testimony, his own experience of being a, a persecutor, of the followers of Jesus and then encountering Jesus and becoming a follower of Jesus and now a missionary for Jesus. And he'd been talking about what God, what God had been doing in his life and what Jesus has appointed for him to do. And after this, we read in uh, later in um, 
That should say first that should say Acts, not First Corinthians. Sorry, that should be Acts eighteen, not First Corinthians eighteen. That's my mistake, I apologize. If you're keeping score, put another one on the column against me. Turn the page, there's room on the back. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. He recruited this couple to join him in his missionary work. And they left their home and went with him. And uh, then we see, again, I messed up. This is the second mistake. Put another mark on there. This is still Acts 18. At Centria, Paul had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He left uh, Aquila and Priscilla there. Uh, But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Paul left Priscilla and Aquila at Ephesus, and he continued on from there. Now, now I got the reference right again. Yay me. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Priscilla and Aquila were about to meet someone who was going to be assigned to them as God's appointment. Whether they or whether Paul knew it at the time, this was the major reason that they went with Paul to Ephesus and then stayed there after Paul left. Continuing uh, in Acts 18... Uh, about Apollos, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos had finished his undergraduate studies And then God enrolled him in seminary with Aquila and Priscilla as his professors. They had learned from the Apostle Paul. And now God had appointed them to teach Apollos to finish and to round out his training so that he could become the effective evangelist and missionary that God had appointed for him. Incidentally, this is the same thing we are trying to do here at Harmony Ministries in our pastoral internship program. Right now we have Ben Horovitz in our pastoral internship program. Uh, He's a student at Bible College, uh, finishing his second, starting his third year at Uh, his Bachelor of Science in Bible program. I'm not sure if that's the exact exact degree program he's in. But God has called him to ministry, and he has called him out from among us to serve him in ministry. And we are part of the preparation that God has for him to prepare him for the work of the ministry. That's pretty cool, isn't it? We are functioning in Ben's life and hopefully in many more people's lives as the time goes, just like Priscilla and Aquila were doing for Apollos and helping equip them and train them and get them ready for whatever God has in store for them next. Now, that's all that we learn about Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts. But in the bulletin, I've asked a a rhetorical question. How did Paul see Priscilla and her husband Aquila? How did Paul see her? Look at, uh, look at Romans chapter 16 at the close of Paul's letter to the Romans. In, his, in that part of all of Paul's letters where he gives some personal greetings. They almost always come at the very end of the letter. Uh, And at the end of Romans chapter 16, well, the beginning of chapter 16, but at the end of Romans chapter 16, verse 3, greet Prisca. Prisca is the name. Priscilla is sort of the 
the nickname that comes with it. Little, little Prisca, Priscilla, little Prisca. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Notice now, almost every time their names appear, almost every time Priscilla's name comes before Aquila's name. That's, that's not something we should overlook. For most of the years of our marriage, Kelly and I, um, I talked about us as Dennis and Kelly. Other people have addressed us as Dennis and Kelly. But in more recent years, I'm wising up. I'm wearing a, a ring, a, a wedding ring that I... I, I have to replace my wedding ring every so often because I keep losing them. Not because I want to, but for various reasons. And uh, uh, we, we went to this Amish flea marketplace where there's a guy who makes personalized rings. And so this is actually the second one. I had another one and I lost it. <laughs> so I, the last time we were there, I had to make another one. And it says on it the date of our wedding so that I will always remember when my anniversary is. <laughs> and it says Kelly and Dennis. Kelly and Dennis. Now, I don't know that Aquila made this conscious choice, but Paul did. When thinking of this ministry couple, this man and woman married and serving God together over time. Remember when they were first introduced to us, it was Aquila, a Jew from Pontus. Oh, and by the way, his wife Priscilla. But over time, as their ministry grew, Paul began to think of them and speak about them to others as Priscilla and Aquila. You might think that's not important. But I think... Everything in the Bible is important and nothing is there accidentally. So, so I'm trying to pay attention and I'm trying to learn from that. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all of the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. This woman and this man, this couple had impacted the entire generation of Christians all over the Middle Eastern world, and every church knew about them and praised God for them. That's significant. And, and by the way, he says, greet also the church in their house. It was the custom of that day that people... Christians didn't gather in special buildings like you and I do. Go to church, as in go to a building that is set aside for this purpose, is not a first century idea. Being the church and gathering where our brothers and sisters make room for us is the original idea of the, the gathered church. And a group of Christians was gathering regularly for worship, for instruction, for fellowship and service in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. And they were leading that congregation, presumably together. We see it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is where the 1 Corinthians reference kept coming in. And, and it, just, it just kept coming in when it wasn't supposed to. But this one is, is where it's supposed to be. 1 Corinthians 16, the section in the letter to Corinthians that Paul includes his greetings. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. There it is again. Wherever Priscilla and Aquila are, wherever their house is, there is a gathering of Christians meeting there together and Priscilla and Aquila are leading it. And one more time, in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, written to Timothy shortly before Paul's execution in Rome, he greets one last time this dear couple. They made the final 
list, Paul's last list. And he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. That's 2 Timothy 4.19. One more time, as he's coming to the end of his life, he wants to acknowledge the role of this man and this woman, co-workers in his ministry. I'd like to uh, draw your attention as we come to a close to Galatians chapter 3. This is a more general sense, and I want you to recognize Galatians is one of the first things Paul wrote under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Before he gathered the wisdom and experience of the three missionary journeys and the journey to Rome and all of the things that befell Paul, uh, Galatians is among his first works, and even in his first works, he has this sense that he wants us to get. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's the ethnic distinction that we identify. We wouldn't use Jew or Greek to to distinguish between our ethnicities today, would we? We would probably use uh, the tone of our skin to distinguish our ethnic, our ethnic uh, heritage or what ethnic group we belong to. Maybe, this, maybe how I, I look, how, how light or dark my skin is or what language I'm speaking. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Then he says there is neither slave nor free. That's our economic, that's our, that's our social class distinction. Rich or poor, middle class, upper, upper class, middle class, lower class. And he says there is no male and female, our gender distinction. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one. In Christ Jesus. And then he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We all share equally in the inheritance that is ours through Christ. Now I want to make an application, a specific application for Harmony Ministries, for who we are and for who we're becoming. Uh, we have not done a good job. And now by we, I'm not talking about just harmony. I'm talking about Christianity, especially in America. We have not done a good job of recognizing the, the, the value and the gifting and the esteem and the importance of all of us, especially of women who are part of the body of Christ. A few, a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, I forwarded an article that came across my desk. I forwarded that to our elders, to our pastoral staff, and to our elders elect. And I asked everybody to read this article, and then we begin to dialogue about it. And the article was from Christianity Today, probably one of our best-known evangelical publications in the last hundred years. And Christianity Today was blowing the whistle on themselves. Christianity Today had identified a problem in their upper executive leadership. And uh, some, some of their upper executives had been found guilty of abusing women including their employees, and even sexually abusing them to the point where one or two of them were under indictment for criminal charges. And, and Christianity Today, blew, Christianity Today blew, blew a whistle on themselves and said, we've got to stop this, we've got to do better. We cannot continue to let this sort of thing happen and, and then say nothing about it and just hope that by keeping quiet... We can handle it quietly and it will go away. So Christianity Today said, we're taking positive, intentional steps 
to put women in the place of executive leadership among us so that somebody uh, with influence who is paying attention can prevent this from happening again. Not that long ago, one of probably the best known and most effective apologists for evangelical Christianity passed away. I won't say the man's name. You will all know the name. I'm not trying to sling mud on anybody. But after this influential Christian leader and speaker and author passed away, it came out that over many years he had been sexually abusing women on his staff and on his payroll. And his organization was aware of it and they kept it quiet. And after he passed away, they blew the whistle and said, this happened. We're sorry it happened. We're saying now, I'm saying, and I've asked our pastoral staff and our elders to join me in saying, we're not going to wait until we have to blow the whistle and say we messed up. We're going to intentionally put some things in place to make sure that we can't mess up this way. And along the way, we're taking some steps to make sure that we're doing some intentional things to make sure that, that if you're a woman sitting among us today, you don't have to feel less than the man sitting near you. Now, we're trying to figure this out. This is still an ongoing, unfolding conversation. We, we have to be faithful to the Scripture, first of all. We have to be faithful to the Scripture. But we have to be faithful to the whole Scripture, including those parts that we talked about this morning. And the example of a person like Deborah, and the example of a person like Priscilla, and the example of other women. And so what, what we're proposing so far, again, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we're not all the way ready to roll this out yet, but I'm telling you, because this is the moment to tell you, I'm telling you that I have, have, have proposed, and I'm, I'm confident that the elders will agree with me in our conversation so far, we're moving together in this direction. We are going to establish what I'm, what I'm, what I'm temporarily calling an executive advisory council. Now, this is not in our Constitution, and it's not in our bylaws, and we're not trying to ram anything down anybody's throats, okay? I, I'm hoping that you all understand and trust what I'm saying to you today. In the interest of openness and transparency, uh, we want to establish what we're temporarily calling an executive advisory council, and we're going to place on this advisory council um, women in our congregation... And, and possibly, as we go along, representatives of some other underrepresented groups of people who are underrepresented in leadership and then also in our congregation to say, how come we all look like white, old white men? How come all of our leaders look, look just like me? Well, not exactly just like me. <laughs> old white men. We recognize that. That's the appearance that we are giving. And as long as that's the way we look, that's who is going to say, okay, I feel comfortable there. But that's not good enough. Amen. That's not good enough. And we recognize that. And we want to do better. So uh, I want you on this Women's Day to understand we recognize we have to grow. And part of our growth is to say, we have to change. We have to find a, a balance between faithful to the word of God and effective to the people, effective in bringing the people from our community together to say together we are the body of Christ and God wants us to do something significant. And for that to happen... We need to be united in harmony. And I, hope, and I know that there are some people who are sitting here thinking, I can't believe he's saying this. Elders, get rid of them. 
And there might be some people saying, okay, that's a step, but it's not enough. If you're going to make a step, make a, make a strong step. And, and, I'm, and I'm asking you to be patient with us as leaders because we want to get this right. We want to get this right. We want to get it right before God, and we want to have it right for the people that God brings here. So pray for us while we try to work on this, okay? Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, getting me through this. I don't know if I've done it well or if I haven't. That'll be up to you to decide. But, Father, thank you for helping me. I have sensed your help in preparing and delivering this message today. I pray that you'll help guide us and bring us to where we need to be, where you want us to be. I thank you for the women who are a part of our congregation. Of course, we thank you for mothers on this Mother's Day, and we celebrate them. But we thank you for women who we need and who have made vital and important contributions to bringing Harmony Ministries to the place where it is today. And in, in going forward, Father, we will continue to need men and women alike working together, valuing one another, esteeming one another, and appreciating one another, and learning from one another as we grow to be the people that you have called us to be. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. God in heaven and dear am I on earth so I've Jesus I am so
And I'll let my words be few Jesus, I am so in love with you Father God, would you stand in awe of you? We are thankful for what you do in our lives every single day. And God, we're thankful that we have value because we're your children. Because we are created to be images of you. Help us this week to understand that and remember that as we deal with people who may not think like us, may not look like us, but every single one of them is an image bearer of the Almighty God. Help us to remember that this week and be witnesses for you. In Jesus' name, amen.